Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Sarah Burns, who's the author of a new book from the University Press of Kansas, The Politics of War Powers, The Theory and History of Presidential Unilateralism. This is a fascinating and really deep exploration of understanding not only presidents, but particularly the war powers that presidents have used over more than 200 years in the United States. But I'm going to let Sarah, tell us a little bit about that. I'd like to welcome Sarah Burns to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular and important project. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Lily. Um, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this um, this podcast, and I'm really excited to talk about the book. I, I'm an associate professor of political science, so I've been at RIT for about six years now. And I came to this project actually during grad school when I was looking into Obama's decision to um, go into Libya in 2011. And it was strange to me because he essentially decided within a couple of weeks after Gaddafi was really oppressing his people and doing so very, very violently, Obama just in a couple of weeks decided, I I guess we're going to, <laughs> we're going to go in with the military. And he didn't ask Congress. He didn't, you know, make any sort of effort to get Congress involved. He just sent them a letter saying, just so you guys know, I I decided that I was going to go into Libya and completely disrupt the regime. And I hope that's okay with you. And so that decision and that unilateralism just got me thinking, you know, is this anomalous? Is Obama, you know, different than other presidents? And how far back does this go? And then writing the book, I realized it goes back to about FDR. And then Wilson sort of tried to do something like this, but wasn't quite as successful as FDR and then uh, future presidents after that. And but but you don't start with say FDR. You you go all the way back. In fact, you go back to before the Articles of Confederation, um, and you go back not only to Locke, but you also um, really give uh, a forefronted analysis to Montesquieu as as a sort of key component to understanding not only presidential capacity, but also the dialogue between the branches. Can you talk a little bit about how Locke and Montesquieu are um, sometimes not always equally um, given credit, shall we say, um, for some of the founding framework? Yeah, I think it's so important and so interesting to see how much uh, John Locke figures in discussions about the presidency and discussions about especially prerogative power and the idea about how it is that presidents exercise power. And then when you look back to the founders, they almost never referenced John Locke when thinking through presidential power, and they always referenced um, Montesquieu. So I think one of the reasons for that is because when you look at John Locke and you look at his writings about presidential power and separation of powers, it's fairly digestible and fairly understandable. And comparatively, when you try and look at Montesquieu, as all Montesquieu scholars will tell you, it's infuriating. He you know, presents really important facts right next to innocuous, you know, 
anecdotal things about Japanese culture in the 15th century. And then he'll bring these profound revelations, but you're not quite sure always whether or not he's talking about universal truths or he's just kind of like in an anthropological way describing certain societies. So it takes a long time, I think, to really access what he's trying to tell us, especially because what he's trying to tell us is, yes, there are universal truths, but they have to be shifted and applied in a particular way to a particular society. And that's not a comfortable piece of information when you're trying to analyze from 30,000 feet what the American presidency is all about, how he fits into the separation of powers. So I think that's why you don't see as much work on Montesquieu when people are talking about the presidency and when people are talking about the, the structure of the constitution. And I think that's a disservice because of the fact that he was so influential for the founders and he was such an important figure in trying to understand how you take the idea of you know a president, uh, a legislature and a judiciary and then mix them or meld them in a particular way that suits a particular society. So that's why I liked bringing him in. And one of the things that you sort of talk about um, in the way you discuss sort of presidential power, particularly with regard to the war powers, is the dialogue between the branches um, and their and their sort of position with regard to the constitutional powers given to each branch around the war powers. Um, and I found this a really enlightening kind of conversation, in part because you also note later in the book how Congress has ceded so much of its responsibility. So I was wondering if you can sort of explain a little bit about sort of, as you interpret it, the sort of founding dialogue and the constitutional structure around those, the the sort of competing understanding of the roles of the war powers. Yeah, I think it's, it's a very good question. And it's one of those things where uh, in 2020, it's very hard for us to remember or realize that it used to be that Congress really did involve itself in war powers questions and involve itself in questions more broadly about foreign policy. So what was supposed to happen and the way that the founders structured it and the way that it worked until the early or mid 20th century is that presidents would make their case for a particular war or for foreign policy decisions to Congress. And Congress would then spend a good deal of time deliberating how it is that they think they should react, what they should do, what powers they should give the presidency, what money they should give the presidency, how many troops they should give the presidency. And after they had deliberated all of those things, they would then write up in a very clear way, you know, we are authorizing the president to do this. We are giving him these things. We are giving him these powers. And he now has the responsibility to use those powers effectively to end the, the war end the, the conflict. And that was then shifting to a certain extent under FDR and really, really shifted during the Cold War for a variety of reasons. But it was just Congress very slowly and over time gave up that deliberative quality and gave up the desire to engage with the president and engage in foreign policy decision making more broadly. And and so I I mean I love reading about the founding and I I just did a podcast the other week about the national bank controversy in the early days of the republic so I'm always happy to sort of look at 
some of the discussions around the early presidents and and you do a really thoughtful job as one as much as one can with regard to Jefferson um, and and the complication that Jefferson always provides for those of us who study the presidency in terms of what he thought, perhaps, um, with regard to the president's power, um, particularly kinds of ideas of, around prerogative power and what he did as president. And so I would love for you to sort of talk about Jefferson also in comparison to Washington and kind of the Hamiltonian image. Yeah, I Jefferson, we were we were talking just before the podcast, that Jefferson is one of those perplexing characters that I think everyone has an opinion on. And it's always something that's very engaging, but at the same time, infuriating. So he's a little bit like Montesquieu in that way, but I have much more affection for Montesquieu than I do for Jefferson. <laughs> um, so I think Jefferson had a, or I think that Jefferson has a unique perspective on the presidency because he thought that containing too much power within the presidency and having too many enumerated powers for the presidency was a bad thing. And so what he wanted to do was have these extra constitutional powers. So in other words, outside of the law. And the hope for him was then he would do something outside of the law or not even illegal, just you know, un, undescribed by law. And it would then be ratified by Congress or ratified by the people and therefore constitutional or acceptable. In contrast, Hamilton was very inclined to see the presidency as a very, very broad grant of power. So the the way he read Article 2 was much more uh, almost monarchic in terms of how he thought about it. And there's lots and lots of discussion, obviously, also about Hamilton. And he's been, I think, a little bit manipulated by uh, more recent scholars, especially people like John Yoo, who have taken the way that he presented the presidency as fairly broad and just exploded the size of executive power. So if you're looking at Hamilton, how he actually thought about it, it's certainly true that he had a more capacious understanding about executive power and a more capacious understanding about what powers the president had under the law. At the same time, if you look at the debate between Hamilton and Madison in the Pacificus Helvidius debate over whether or not Uh, Washington was allowed under the Constitution to just declare peace, right? So he wasn't declaring war. He wasn't, you know, (laughs) uh, killing an Iranian general in uh, in Iraq. He was just saying, um, I think that right now we're uh, we're in a state of peace, and that's good. And all Hamilton was saying was that's allowable under executive power. So if we think about that as perhaps a manipulation about what the Constitution really says then, you know, his understanding about executive power was still much, 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 much more narrow than presidents have been interpreting executive power for the last 70 years. And and I, I, I mean, again, I think it's an interesting sort of perspective with regard to moving backwards from our current position to sort of, again, look at Hamilton as I always do with my students um, in terms of talking about the presidency as well as the other branches. Um, but I, I do find it interesting to, to see the way that Hamilton has been sometimes used as um, an explanation or uh, a basis to, to sort of have possibly really, as you say, kind of exploded um, executive power. Uh, but your book also um, does a, a very fine job in sort of teasing out an understanding of what Lincoln thought 
of the presidential war powers. Can you talk a little bit about particularly the Lincoln case, um, which is a complicated one, uh, and, and how he understood his role in that regard? Yeah, I think Lincoln was probably, to be perhaps too honest, uh, one of the hardest parts of the book to write because I found out when writing the Lincoln section that uh, there are, uh, he has the second most number of books written about him. And the first uh, most written about person is Jesus. So it goes Jesus, Lincoln, Lincoln. everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, in trying to figure out what, how to interpret or how to understand Lincoln, one of the things that sometimes happens is that people think that he, much like Jefferson, thought of his powers as extra constitutional. And once I started looking into it, you can see he actually toes a very, very careful line in saying things like, these are my constitutional powers. And so based on my constitutional powers to say, for example, take care that the laws are faithfully executed, then I can do certain things to the Southern states that have seceded. In, in contrast, when he decided to uh, blockade the, the harbors in several states, he never men- mentions the Constitution, never mentions constitutional powers. He just says, I think it's prudent to do these things. And so you can see what he's trying to do is avoid talking about his war powers because the, the power to blockade is actually a war power. And therefore, he would have had to, he would have needed a declaration of war in order to do it. And it's very effective, I think, in trying to show, you know, what are contained within the Constitution, what powers are contained within the Constitution, and in contrast, what a president can do if there's a, you know, quote-unquote attack, right? And so almost everyone among the founders agreed that the president should have the power to repel sudden attacks. And so you see Lincoln saying, there's certain things that are in my constitutional powers, and there's certain things that I'm doing to repel a sudden attack, which is the southern states seceding from the Union. And I... It's unfortunate that his example is then manipulated by future presidents to say, because he was doing this in, again, a a period of imminent threat, a period of um, great, great strife, I can do it in a period that's not as existentially problematic, right? And so you see FDR actually under, with the help of Robert Jackson, who was his, um, who was his AG at the time. Um, Robert Jackson said, okay, well, Lincoln was able to use all these powers during, again, an existential crisis. So we, because of the World War, are going to use these same powers. And it was a totally different situation. And so while his example is problematic in the way that future presidents use it, I think as a president and as a person who's exercising his constitutional powers, he did so incredibly deftly considering all the things that he had to deal with. And and so I wanted before we get to FDR because I definitely want to get to FDR. Um, you you also talk about the fact that sort of Woodrow Wilson kind of tried but didn't necessarily do it as well or as fully as FDR would in terms of the use of the war powers um, and and to some degree positioning the executive in relation to the Congress. Can you explain a little bit about um, Wilson's attempt and and perhaps where it didn't quite quite work? Yeah, it's also a good question. Uh, He's such an interesting figure, obviously, in American history, especially because he's the only president who had a PhD. And I think we can all agree, therefore, we shouldn't have PhDs in the Oval Office. Uh, It's also true that 
he had extensive writings on how he thought that the branches should interact or should work, uh, I would say even more interestingly, he was writing at a time when you have legislative supremacy and the legislature being much, much, much more powerful than the executive. So what he was reacting to was a very, very powerful legislature. And his response to that was, well, we should have a much more powerful executive. And you see him saying this in his writings and then attempting to do so when he was president. And so at first, during World War I, you can see that what he's trying to do is stay as peaceful as possible and as neutral as possible because he was hoping he would be able to be a negotiator. And then because of persistent threats from the, the Germans and then persistent acts against the United States, he eventually got Congress on his side to say, all right, we do have to engage in this fight, even though there was a lot of reluctance to, to engage in World War I. What's peculiar after that is obviously his big failure with the League of Nations. And so what we see here is first a president being extremely insistent and extremely insistent on his way. But we see that at a time when Congress still has the capacity to say, absolutely not, not on our watch. And what happened in the League of Nations is that the Congress said to him, obviously just the Senate, because it's a, a treaty. So the Senate said to him, um, listen, it seems like you're creating the super sovereignty and that's going to take away our war powers. So all we need is some sort of guarantee that we are the only ones who are going to determine whether or not we are going to initiate hostilities. And Wilson said to them, no, the treaty is the treaty, sign the treaty, do what I say. And he went around the entire country trying to whip up uh, support for it. And there was fairly broad support in the country for the League of Nations. At the same time, the Senate still said to him, we are not ever going to sign something that is going to take away these war powers. And they were sufficiently strong at the time and sufficiently united in that view that they could stand up to him. And so ultimately the League of Nations was never formed. And so Wilson, you know, again, is, is, is in this conversation, in this dialogue with the, the legislature that is willing to stand up to him. And, and you talk about the fact that in the, in the Cold War period and the post-Cold War period, our legislator, our Congress is, is a little bit, shall we say, less willing um, to sort of have that forceful um, engagement with the executive. Uh, but FDR is kind of the turning point here. And so in your analysis of the sort of expansion of presidential war powers and capacities, can you talk a little bit more in more detail with regard to how FDR also integrated this role of the legal opinion, um, and that becomes so important to us during the Cold War and post-Cold War period. Yeah, that was a, a very interesting time and a very interesting decision that he made, because you see FDR uh, during the Depression as well as during the Second World War trying extremely hard to push Congress in the direction that he wanted them to go. And as a charismatic and beloved politician, he had all of the power in the world, let's say, all the formal and informal powers to try and push Congress. And you still see Congress, you know, uh, you know, slapping him down and making him do what they say or making him go a different direction than he wants to go. So I think part of the reason why he eventually decided, let's get some lawyers involved, is because he just couldn't, under the Constitution and through Congress, get everything that he wanted, wanted passed. So he then has the um, Attorney General, Robert Jackson, 
who obviously very famously later in um, Korematsu was the dissenting voice saying like the, the, the judiciary shouldn't be consenting to the internment of the Japanese. But as an AG, he was tasked with um, doing what the president wanted or manipulating the constitutional text in order to prove however implausibly that the president had certain powers that are nowhere in the constitutional text and completely made up on the part of Robert Jackson. And I think having made that up and having gone that far, right, really just completely manipulating what the constitution could have said, you see that he's now created this precedent that future presidents could follow. And the reason future presidents could follow that is because Congress didn't say, absolutely not. You cannot manipulate the constitution this way. You cannot say these kinds of things. We are putting our foot down and firmly refusing to accept your definition of presidential powers. But instead, Congress, to a certain extent, had other things to do, to a certain extent, sort of thought, oh, God, I mean, FDR's at it again, because he'd been doing these kind of manipulations before. So they just don't stand up to him and just don't stand up to this offense to the constitutional system and the separation of powers. And that then opens the door to future presidents doing exactly the same thing and, and using their lawyers to manipulate the constitutional text to say that they have much, much broader powers than they actually do. And of course, Truman is the one who more or less codifies this, right? And and how does he do that? Uh, he does that especially with the Korean War. And I want to give uh, a little bit of background on the Korean War because it's such an interesting example of how poorly policymaking decisions occur in this new, you know, disjointed, like funhouse mirrors version of the separation of powers. So in approximately April of 1950, Truman gets NSC 68, which is uh, the, the document saying we should militarize containment. So we should have uh, the effort to contain the, the communists, the, the Soviets, but we should use our military to do so because that's they're only going to respond to strength. And then in June of that year, we see North Korea invading South Korea. And around the same time, the Soviets get nuclear weapons and <laughs> to to make a complicated story very quick, or sorry, to make a complicated story um, and do it so very quickly, on the UN Security Council, the Soviet member had walked out. And that was because we refused to seat the communist member of the Chinese delegation. And we just saw, we continued to seat the nationalists. So in other words, we had four people who were relatively friendly to each other on the Security Council and the Soviets had left. So, then when North Korea invades South Korea, this UN Security Council says, all right, you know, member states should do everything they can to repel this attack. You know, it's illegal, it's unjust, do something. And so Truman was then able to say, look, the Security Council said that we have to use our military. He also had a military already stationed in Japan. So it was very easy to go into Korea. And Therefore, he could completely cut out Congress and he didn't have to go to Congress and ask them for permission. He didn't have to go to Congress and ask them for the money. He didn't have to go to Congress and ask them for the troops because all these things were already there. And so reacting to all of these events that had occurred and ideas that had occurred in the early part of um, 1950, Truman just decided, all right, I've got this big military. I've got plenty of money. Let's just <laughs> invade just a country. This. Yeah, <laughs> let's just invade a country and start a war. And again, Congress had the capacity at this point 
to to stop him or say absolutely not you cannot use this military for these reasons but instead they just funded it and therefore again implicitly sanctioned this idea that we can just accidentally get into a war and do so in a totally random way without a real you know decision making process without you know, a decision about how many trips we're going to use, how long we're going to be there, what a successful conclusion would look like. And so that's since then been kind of how we fought wars or how we've gotten into wars. And this is, this always is sort of stunning to a lot of my students when I talk about the the war power um, that Congress has. They're the ones who declare war. And I always say, well, when was the last time Congress declared war? And and they're like, oh, you know, Korea, Vietnam. Um, like, nope. <laughs> um, and that's because of what Truman essentially did in this case. Yes, both Truman and, as I constantly have to say to my reviewers who are like, no, it's the president's fault. It's the president's fault. It's Congress's fault. Right. They're the ones who are supposed to be standing up to the president and saying, absolutely not. You can't do this. And instead, we have this collective action issue where presidents do absolutely stupid things and you know back us into these wars accidentally with no idea about how to get us out and what a conclusion would look like. And Congress is like, so how much do you want for that? <laughs> you know, and, and you think to yourself, why, why aren't they asserting their powers and why aren't they doing more? And you see that over the course of the Cold War, their incentives start changing so that they start realizing you know, because the president's responsible for this war, because the president is the one people see as responsible for the war, if it goes badly, they blame him. And even if it goes well, he gets the rewards. So why should we put our reputations on the line to to help or, you know, participate in this process when we get none of the rewards and we would get the blame if things go badly? And so that and so it's continues, a- yeah, over the course of the Cold War. Yeah. And it's an extended case, essentially, of what congressional scholars often call blame avoidance behavior. Exactly. Um, and it and it just kind of changes the dramatic behavioral capacity of Congress with regard to its role in the sort of war powers in the Constitution. Um, and so we end up now, <laughs> um, and and there, but there are a number of presidents along the way who are able to sort of make legal cases. And you you do a, a really interesting job sort of talking about how the lawyers got involved beyond Jackson. Um, and that now the Office of Legal Counsel is usually where presidents turn. Can you talk about how the Office of Legal Counsel has become essentially the basis for our engagement in military action? Yeah, it's... It's very peculiar, and it's. I, I'll i also give credit to Jack Goldsmith, who wrote about this very eloquently in, in a couple of books, but especially uh, his book, The Terror Presidency, where he said, you know, once you're in the Office of Legal Counsel, you get the impression, for totally understandable reasons, that you, as the president's lawyer, are supposed to be on his side and supposed to help him make his case. So when he comes to you with astounding requests... To say, you know, what presidential power allows him to do, the inclination of the lawyer is not to say, actually, having studied the Constitution for a long time and having a good understanding about what executive power contains, that's not right, Mr. President. Their inclination is to say, of course, we will we'll find precedent for you and we will, you know, establish these things. 
And so because we have FDR creating this idea that you can go to your, at the time AG, but eventually Office of Legal Counsel, and ask them to change the definition of executive power, then it didn't happen as much during the Cold War, but you see, especially in the 1990s, when there was no longer the, the threat of communism to really galvanize everyone's support and galvanize opinion on, you know, we should do whatever we need to, 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 to fight the communists to, to ensure our safety. So in the 90s, you see the OLC really ramping up its uh, duties because you have all these humanitarian interventions. And so you think to yourself, what authorization does the president have to use the American military to go into Somalia, to go into Bosnia and Kosovo? You know, why can he do these things? And so he can certainly then say, you know, there was there was this crisis. I had to do something. But there's nothing that actually gives him these powers, which is why they started turning to the Office of Legal Counsel to say, you know, make up a reason why I can do this. And you see especially George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush, I apologize. His office of legal counsel goes all the way back to um, FDR. And then they go even further and say, if you look at Lincoln and if you look at Jefferson, clearly presidents can initiate military operations unilaterally because the Jefferson example, they say, they claim was that Jefferson launched a bunch of military operations against the Barbary pirates. Now that's completely false and a complete like manipulation of history, but no one calls them on it. And well, who remembers the Barbary pirates? Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's been, it's been so long since the Barbary pirates. And so no one's kind of like, you know, fact checking what happened in the early 19th century. And so after you see George HW Bush do it, then you could maybe think, all right, well, Obviously, Bill Clinton, with his his youth and his you know new ideas about how to do things, he's not going to do the same thing. And he dips into the exact same well and has his OLC doing the exact same thing for other humanitarian interventions. So for him, it was um, uh, uh, not Rwanda, pardon me. Um, so Somalia, pardon me, yeah. Uh, Somalia, Haiti, as well as Bosnia and Kosovo. And again... They're not only do they say, all right, well, we have to do these things. We're compelled. And so like, look at all this precedent. But they also say, you know, our NATO allies are doing it. <laughs> the UN said that we can do it. And so they're using uh, outside bodies to do exactly what the, the Senate, when Wilson was president, was saying they were going to do. Right. And so we see that the UN and NATO had become these outside authorizing forces that presidents could look to when they couldn't get authorization from Congress. And again, Congress then just accepted that that's how things should go. And so therefore they weren't uh, pushing back or saying you absolutely have to come to us and you absolutely have to get our permission. And so the international sort of structure and community then also comes into the dialogue, as it were, about who has the power to okay U.S. involvement in, 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 in situations where there's going to be some sort of military engagement. Is that the case? Yes. And very interestingly, when they were passing, I spent a grueling amount of time going through the congressional record and looking at the passage of the UN and NATO treaties, because as I mentioned, when they were trying to pass the League of Nations, you see the Senate saying, absolutely not. You cannot do this. This is not okay. These are super sovereign bodies. We don't like this. With the UN and NATO uh, treaties, it's the exact opposite. Congress is like, what a great idea. <laughs> like, obviously we want 
these international bodies and they're going to do wonderful things for sustaining peace and there's never going to be a war again and everything's going to be fine. And then you have these Cassandra-like figures who come in to give testimony in front of Cong- in front of congressional committees saying, you guys are not taking this seriously. We're going to have troops all over the world. We're going to have presidents who don't have to ask you for anything. And we're going to have wars that start for stupid reasons and that never end. And Congress is like, thank you very much for your testimony. Off you go. And you're like, why aren't you listening to these people? Uh, very humorously, uh, all of the people who acted in this Cassandra-like way were women as well. So it's very interesting that these... They were actually Cassandras. Literally Cassandras, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and literally, you know, all these, uh, like, men are just sitting there saying, like, that's cute, but that's not what's going to happen. Um, and so, you know, fast forward... Uh, even actually not that even that far because the UN was the one who sanctioned the war in Korea. But then you fast forward to the nineties and you see that the, the presidents are using both UN and NATO to justify operations rather than going through Congress. And it's, it's completely allowable. Like no one is sort of balking at this and that continues well into the, you know, the terror presidency era well after nine 11. And so that, of course, is where I wanted to ask you to go next in terms of the structure of the book. Also, is you have the terror presidencies or the ones that follow 9-11 and, and sort of and the, and the incidents that occurred earlier than 9-11 as well. Um, and the Office of Legal Counsel becomes even more important, it seems. Yes, especially uh, the the figure of John Yoo, because John Yoo had this, <clears throat> excuse me, incredibly broad understanding about executive power, and he then wrote uh, several memos, acting as if Hamilton was the justification for this, and saying, you know, Hamilton has the same view as I do, and Hamilton, according to you, um, had this view of presidential powers, especially war powers, that presidents have the power to do any kind of military operation short of perfect war or total war. And so that's why he said, you know, George W. Bush could do almost anything he wanted and, you know, engage in drone strikes. And uh, he was also the infamous author of the torture memo saying, you know, this is torture, but these things below that level aren't torture. And so you can do all these things to uh, the, uh, the terrorists. And so you see, that the already broad powers that the president had, especially in the realm of war, get a shot of steroids after 9-11, because at this point, you know, Congress has had 50 years of being supine and just letting the president go. And we now have a very real threat that's stateless and terrifyingly everywhere. So it's, I'm, I'm sympathetic, let's say, to Congress at the time being like, do whatever you need to do, Mr. President, we are behind you 100%. At the same time, by doing so and by just sanctioning these broad, broad, broad powers um, very quickly, they left the door open for Obama and now Trump to continue using the 2001 and 2002 AUMFs because those look like there's no sunset point, right? There's no end to the authorization. And so in 2001, they authorize the president to go after individuals. And interestingly, in the 2001 authorization, it says, obviously, people who are responsible for 9-11, but also anyone who aided them. Now, when you're thinking to yourself, well, what does it mean by, by aiding them or abetting them? You know, does the person who sold them groceries count as someone who is abetting the terrorists? 
and there's no kind of like, you know, uh, outside scope for who is responsible or who can be uh, taken by the United States to as being part of the responsible parties. Like, for example, um, Osama bin Laden's driver was taken to Guantanamo Bay and he hadn't per se done anything wrong. He had just been driving around someone who was obviously a very, very bad person who had obviously inflicted great harm on the United States. But was he really like, was he within the scope of the AUMF? Yes. Was he really someone that we should have been holding with no trial and no possibility of being released? That doesn't feel constitutional at all. And then you have the same problem with the 2002 AUMF where Congress just says, you know, whatever it is that the president thinks is necessary and appropriate, then he can do in regards to Iraq. And again, there's no sunset clause. There's no in regards to Saddam Hussein, who was the, you know, quote unquote, real threat at the time. So obviously, if you're fighting anyone who's involved in terrorism, which is the 2001 AUMF, and you're doing anything that you want in Iraq, which is the 2002 AUMF, then of course, you know, it seems as if it's allowable or there's statutory authorization for Trump to do what he did in early January, which was kill someone who was uh, planning an imminent threat against Americans and happened to be in Iraq, even though he was actually an Iranian and a member of the Iranian uh, military force. And so we get to the point, essentially, as you say in the book, that the the Congress has ceded so much of its its oversight, its power, its responsibility with regard to the war powers that the Constitution sort of provides um, as actionable, that ultimately, when we get to not only the Cold War presidents, but the post-Cold War presidents, and now the terror, the war on terror presidents, as it were, that <clears throat> it's really hard for Congress to sort of take any of this back or operate in a way that it was originally set out to do. Is that correct? Yeah, it does seem very difficult to see how they would take back those powers. You do see, <clears throat> let's say, the the early signs of, of efforts. And so I think about a year ago, they tried to uh, diminish or remove the president's power to support the Saudis who are involved in the uh, Yemen, Yemen civil war. And then in the authorization for uh, military uh, spending, they for for 2020 they tried to put in language that said the president couldn't use any of the military or use any military to uh, attack Iran or any Iranian targets that didn't get in but all the same these are efforts that having failed still show something and then most recently you have congress actually passing a resolution saying the president cannot attack or use any military force against Iran and so that's likely going to be vetoed by the president. <clears throat> but all the same, you see, <clears throat> excuse me, effort, you see efforts from Congress to, to assert their powers. So whether or not it's really going to work, that's still to be determined and to be, to be understood. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what can we do or what do you sort of understand as the capacity to essentially right the ship of state? Um, after such a long period of having it sort of sort of shifted, um, and particularly because presidents have, 
even as as the times have changed, as the Soviet Union is no longer our enemy, as it were, um, that it's very difficult to see that Congress, as you note, has done this and that a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, but is this inevitable now that the president has these extensive military powers that were not necessarily as designed? I I hate to say that it's inevitable and that there's no way to, as you put it eloquently, right the ship of state. I think that there's a few things that we can look to as uh, positive or, or signs of a healthy rejuvenation of congressional concern. So besides the ones I mentioned, I think it's also true that if we then have voters who are saying to their members of Congress and saying to their senators, we actually want you to hold presidents accountable. We want to, for example, end the 20-year wars that we've had in a variety of places. And you know, we think that you actually could do something to, to end those things, to, to stop us from backing into wars accidentally and do, doing a bad job. If we as voters start saying to the legislature, this is what we want from you, the legislature will respond because their response is directly to what the voters want and what the voters ask for. And so the reason why they aren't doing those things presently is because we haven't asked them to do so. And we don't reward them for standing up to the president and we don't punish them for lacking, uh, for, for not doing so. So I think if we have voters who are more concerned about those things, and I think there's a possibility that that will happen. You know, if you look at the the release of the Afghan papers, while they didn't get as much of a splash as I would have preferred, I think it starts to show the American people that, you know, we had bungled wars in Afghanistan and it didn't stop with George W. Bush. It continued under Obama. It was just bungled in different ways. And so therefore it's likely that it has continued to be bungled under Trump because he hasn't really shifted policy dramatically in regards to Afghanistan, let alone in regards to, you know, fighting terrorism internationally. So if voters start saying, no, this is not acceptable, the status quo is not acceptable, and uh, the Quincy Institute, which I'm a, a member of, um, or a fellow at, I guess is the way we're supposed to say that, they're in a transpartisan fashion trying to show different ways that you can uh, end the endless wars. And then the other thing that's pretty dramatic that I don't think is a is a viable solution, but it's an interesting question, is uh, the reestablishment of the draft. And so the reason I mention that, and I always am very quick to say, like, don't worry, I have an explanation for this. Um, the reason I mention it is because if you then have um, both genders being likely to, or possible, there's a possibility that they're going to be involved in a military operation, then they're going to be much more concerned about where we're going to war, just as we saw with the war in Vietnam, right? Everyone was much more concerned. And secondarily, you're going to have the parents of those people much more concerned about these wars. And so while I'm not suggesting that what we should do is force people to be in the military, what I am suggesting is once you say that we're all in this and there's a possibility that you or your children or your grandchildren are going to go to war, people would be much more concerned and much more focused on the merit of certain military operations. I always talk about that with my students. And I talk about the fact that if there were a draft that were to be established, that it would be, in fact, all men and women. Um, and that's also how I try to get them to pay a little more attention to what's going on in politics. Um, but sadly, I'm not necessarily sure that we are anywhere near having a reestablishment of the draft. 
yeah, I think even just the conversation about it might be enough to kind of, you know, uh, wake people up a little bit. But at the same time, I think you're right that it's, it's such a monumental shift and such a monumental change that the likelihood of it really being reestablished is unlikely. But I think that maybe just the conversation, it would be interesting to see what would happen if you had members of Congress or, you know, people who are running for the presidency or the president saying, well, maybe we should <laughs> reestablish the draft just to see what that idea would do to the conversation. Yeah. I mean, even if you had both men and women all registering for selective service and not only men, um, I think it might change the dynamic a little bit as well in terms of, as you say, it's not just the the people who would be drafted, but also their parents. Um, and, and I think that would be a really interesting sort of um, potential experiment with focusing on foreign engagement and Congress's role. So Sarah, what are you working on now? Uh, next book project, I am looking at essentially what happens after the war. So one of the things that we see in American foreign policy is this focus on the idea of the democratic peace, meaning that there's this concept that came actually from Immanuel Kant, that uh, if you have all republics all over the world, you will have a peaceful world because republics are naturally pacific, naturally disinclined towards war. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, if we look at all of American history, we can see that's not really true. But all the same, that that idea is kind of in the water and amongst um, foreign policy experts. You've seen it since Woodrow Wilson, who famously claimed, you know, we're part of this war now to make the world safe for democracy. So for about 100 years, uh, well, I guess now 120, for about 120 years, the U.S. has been kind of functioning on the idea that a more democratic world is a more peaceful world which is why, for example, after the Spanish-American War, we went into the Philippines and we were, you know, quote unquote, uh, helping them civilize, <laughs> which is the, you know, imperialist way of talking about it. And now we talk about democratizing, which is just the exact same thing, but uh, it sounds friendlier. And so what I'm looking at next is what happens once we finish the war and we're trying to establish peace and trying to uh, usher in a democratic society in a variety of places. So we see it work really, really well, obviously, in Japan and Germany after World War II. And so I want to compare or contrast those positive examples with, obviously, the negative examples of Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, Vietnam, uh, to a certain extent, Korea, and um, the, the Philippines, to a certain extent, and other examples from history, just to see why it worked, when it worked, and why it didn't work, and what the problems were. And so a lot of this, it sounds like, is also in the sort of Cold War, post-Cold War period, so the more modern period as well? Yes, I think it'll be probably more modern. I, I do want to look at earlier examples, though, just to see, for example, there was a ton of revolutions in the early 19th century in Latin America. And at present, my research in that area is a little bit uh, inchoate, like it's, it's very early in the <laughs> in stages. And I want to see how it is that the U.S. reacted to those. Because we see, obviously, the Monroe Doctrine coming up in the early 19th century, saying to Europeans, you know, stay out of the Western Hemisphere. This is ours now. And I wonder if that was in part in reaction to those revolutions and whether the U.S. was helping these states to try and democratize or to try and, you know, overthrow their imperial masters and you know what, what we thought at that time. Because I know, for example, that we weren't very helpful to the Haitian Revolution in the early 19th century. And so understanding 
where we helped, why we helped, who we helped, and for what reasons, all of that is sort of interesting to me as well. Well, I hope you'll come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about the book once it comes out. Thank you very much, Lily. It's been wonderful talking to you about this one. So, um, it's, it's been a pleasure to chat about The Politics of War Powers, The Theory and History of Presidential Unilateralism with Sarah Burns. This book was published in 2019 by the University Press of Kansas, and I assume it's available at the University Press of Kansas website as well as any place else. Yes, Amazon and all of the other... Um, all the other places. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you, Sarah, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Lily.